to the timeline of church history episode number two. And in the first episode, we basically just went over um, the kind of like an overview of what we're going to be doing. And we did the ministry and founding of the church. So we're going to continue on with early Christianity. We're going to go from 34 to 50 AD, but just a quick recap. If you want to know all about the introduction, go to the introduction episode, which is episode one. This is episode two. So um, we just basically talked about the nativity of Jesus, his birth, and we talked about his baptism, his ministry, and how um, he started the Messianic age. And then um, the declaration that Jesus was the Messiah, the son of God, um, his crucifixion, resurrection, um, ascension and Pentecost. So we're going to continue on with some stories from the Bible and we're going to be getting out of the Bible stories rather quickly because I want to get into the stories that you are unfamiliar with. And those are the stories uh, beyond the Bible up until kind of modern history that a lot of people just don't really know about. They don't study and they don't teach it in school. So we're talking about early Christianity today. And first, we're going to talk about St. Stephen. St. Stephen was the first Christian martyr. He was stoned to death in Jerusalem. So St. Stephen, he um, he is traditionally venerated as the proto martyr or the first martyr of Christianity. And according to the Acts of the Apostles, he was a deacon in the early church at Jerusalem who aroused the enmity of members of various synagogues by his teachings. Accused of blasphemy at his trial, he made a speech denouncing the Jewish authorities who were sitting in judgment on him and was then stoned to death. His martyrdom was witnessed by Saul of Tarsus, also known as Paul, a Pharisee and Roman citizen who would later become a Christian apostle. The only source for information about Stephen, of course, is in the New Testament, book of the Acts of the Apostles. Stephen is mentioned in Acts 6 as one of the Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews selected to participate in a fair distribution of welfare to the Greek-speaking widows. The Catholic, Anglican, Oriental Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox churches, and the Church of the East venerate Stephen as a saint. The Lutheran Church recognizes Stephen as a saint as it recognizes all Christians as saints. Traditionally, Stephen is invested with the crown of martyrdom Artistic representations often depict him with three stones and the martyr's palm frond. Eastern Christian iconography shows him as a young beardless man with a tonsure wearing a deacon's vestments. And a tonsure is like a um, the practice of cutting or shaving some or all of the hair on the scalp as a sign of religious devotion. Usually it looks like a little U of hair with bald in the middle. So sometimes they show him with a tonsure. And he wears the deacon's vestments. Uh, vestments are liturgical garments and articles associated primarily with the Christian religion. So it's just what you wear, uh, the robes and things that you wear to have a Christian service. And he's often holding a miniature church building or a censer. And we have a picture of St. Stephen right here. And as you can see, he has three stones. One, two, three. He has the palm, which is a sign of like peace. And he has here, he has a Bible, uh, what looks like a Bible. 
So uh, that's St. Stephen. There is a the speech. So St. Stephen made a speech to the Sanhedrin. And I was hoping that it would be in here, but mm, I don't see it. So I'll have to pull up Acts chapter 7. And da, 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 da. let me see. Here we go. There's a little bit of it, but basically um, Stephen's speech. On the surface, Stephen's speech seemingly did match the charges against him, but the recorded words apparently are part of a larger polemical discourse building on and developing the arguments already put forward in the sermons and trial speeches of the apostles. It can be categorized into rewritten Bible, a selective retelling of biblical Sorry, biblical history from a particular theological standpoint in similar form as Psalm 105, among others in the Bible. Verse 16 uh, has been studied extensively by theologians because the speech of Stephen seems to contradict Genesis. Now, I don't know about that, but this is what it says here. And it says, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. I, I don't know what they're talking about there, but. Um, I guess a lot of uh, scholars and theologians study that because it seems a little weird. It, it doesn't, you know, the verse in Genesis says something different, but we want to focus on Stephen's death. The reaction of the audience to Stephen's speech reached a dramatic high point in verse 54 and heightened even further Stephen's description of his vision in verses 55 and 56. Stephen's visions of God's glory had a con continuity with his speech on Abraham and Moses, but now extends to the open heaven with the figure of Jesus himself positioned at the right hand of God, denoting the highest place of honor and confirming Stephen's claim that he rejected that the rejected savior is in fact God's righteous one. Stephen, as the prototype for Christian martyrdom, dies calling on the name of the Lord, expecting the exalted Jesus to receive his spirit and then cries out in a loud voice for forgiveness that echoes the prayer of Luke 23, 34. So that is a little bit about St. Stephen. Um, and so he was stoned basically because um, the Sanhedrin said uh, that um, basically he was a, uh, one of the seven deacons appointed by the apostles to distribute food and charitable to aid to poor members of the early church. Um, he was the eldest and therefore he was the archdeacon. Uh, and the reason for his appointment is because that there were some Greek speaking Jews that felt like their widows were being slighted in preference for the Hebrew Jews based on food and other things like that, because the widows couldn't really take care of themselves. So Stephen was, you know, um, told to do that by the apostles. So the synagogue did not like that at all. So members of the synagogues challenged Stephen's teaching, but Stephen bested them in debate over and over again. They got furious at the humiliation that they suffered. So they come up, came up with false testimony that Stephen had preached blasphemy against Moses and God. So they dragged him before the Sanhedrin, which is like a, which at the time was like a Jewish religious court of justice. And they could decide whether people would actually be stoned to death or if people would just be punished slightly and let go. Um, in this instance, they chose to stone him to death because he did not deny his, the teachings that Jesus was in fact, God is in fact, God, because Jesus is still alive in heaven. So uh, thus castigated, 
the account is that the crowd could contain their anger no longer because Stephen's speech was powerful. Go read it if you haven't or read it multiple times. It is an excellent speech, Act 7. Um, however, Stephen looked up and cried, Look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. He said that the recently executed Jesus was standing by the side of God. The people from the crowd who threw the first stones laid their coats down so as to be able to do this at the feet of a young man named Saul, later known as Paul the Apostle. Stephen prayed that the Lord would receive his spirit and his killers be forgiven, sank to his knees, and fell asleep. Saul approved of their killing him. In the aftermath of Stephen's death, the remaining disciples fled to distant land, many to Antioch. The exact site of Stephen's stoning is not mentioned in Acts. Instead, there are two different traditions. One claimed by noted French archaeologist Louis-Hugh Vincent and Felix-Marie Abel to be ancient places. Uh, the event at Jerula, sorry, Jerusalem's northern gate, while another one dated by Vincent and Abel to the Middle Ages and no earlier than the 12th century locates it at the eastern gate. So most people agree it was in Jerusalem, whether it was at the northern or eastern gate, that is, you know, another thing um, to be thought about. So uh, here we go. One second. So moving on to our next topic. So we just talked about Stephen, the first Christian martyr who was stoned and why he was stoned. Now we're going to go on to the traditional date of Our Lady of the Pillar who showed up to James the Great in Santiago de Compostela in Spain. And this is something that is not in the Bible, so you might not have heard of it. So Our Lady of the Pillar is the name given to the Blessed Virgin Mary in the context of the traditional belief that Mary, while living in Jerusalem, supernaturally appeared to the Apostle James the Greater in AD 40 while he was preaching in what is now Spain. Those who adhere to this belief consider this appearance to be the only recorded instance of Mary exhibiting the mystical phenomena of bilocation. And bilocation, which is also known as multilocation, is, an, is a physic or uh, sorry, psychic or miraculous ability where an individual or object is located in two places at the same time. So you can imagine um, your mom is in the kitchen and she's also in her bedroom at the same time. Of course, that one doesn't really it's not apples to apples because there's no reason God would need to miraculously <laughs> show your mother in those two places unless you were going to convert uh, to the faith for that reason. So. Uh, moving on, among Catholics, it is considered the first Marian apparition being unique due to having occurred while Mary was still living on earth. And in that apparition is reported supernatural appearance of someone, usually the Virgin Mary, um, and over a period of time. So there are a lot of Marian apparitions and we'll be going into more of those later throughout church history. Now, um, this this title of Our Lady of the Pillar is associated with a wooden image commemorating the apparition which is now enshrined at the Cathedral Basilica of Our Lady of the Pillar in Zaragoza, Aragon, Spain. And we have a picture of that right here, as you can see. Um, and uh, Pope Callistus III granted indulgences for visitors to the shrine in 1456 and an indulgence and of course, my camera froze again. I don't know why it does that. So let me just turn it off. Don't need that. <laughs> An indulgence is um, 
a teaching of the Catholic Church. Now, remember, we're talking about Catholic. We're talking about church history in general, all the churches. But all the churches began with the Catholic Church. All the historians agree. Anybody who is religious or non-religious who is a historian agrees there was only one church in the beginning and they kind of split off from there. Whether you agree or disagree with how they split off is a matter of debate. The fact that all the churches were one and then split off is just a matter of fact. Whether it was good or bad that they split, you know, we can have differences there. Um, and of course we do. But the fact that they all started in the Catholic Church and then split off, that that's just true. So um, all the churches believed in indulgences in the beginning, and most churches still do. As a matter of fact, um, kind of a sidebar here, the vast majority of churches, or I should say ecclesiastical communities, uh, believe that all the same things there's well Catholics are the largest body of Christians and then next you have if I'm not mistaken Orthodox they're the second largest body but there's so many kind of different types of Orthodox there's Greek Orthodox there's Russian Orthodox um, there's Egyptians uh, Coptics different things like that um, they're the second largest and then you have if I'm not mistaken I could be wrong and then you have the Protestants which are the third largest because there's so many denominations there. But uh, the Orthodox and the Catholics both believe in the idea of indulgence, which is a way that you can reduce uh, your punishments that are due to committing a sin. We'll go into that more later because that's very important. That is a hugely important part of the Reformation. So we will go into that much later. Okay, so visitors of the shrines were given indulgences by the Pope, and in 1730, um, the veneration was mandated throughout the Spanish Empire, which means that, hey, Our Lady of the Pillar is something that you guys have to celebrate in Spain. So in 1905, Pope Pius X granted the image a canonical coronation, which is a pious in institutional act of the Pope, duly expressed in a papal bull in which he bestows an ornamental crown diadem or halo to a Marian Christological or Joseph Josephian image or statue that is widely venerated. So in 1905, Pope Pius X gave this Our Lady of the Pillar, the canonical crown, which you can see here kind of at the top. All right, moving on. Our Lady of the Pillar is considered the patroness of Aragon and its capital Zaragoza and of the Spanish Civil Guard. Her feast day is October 12th, which coincides with Columbus Day, the national holiday of Spain. Just so you're learning something about Spain here. So we're going to talk about the early tradition of um, Our Lady of the Pillar. So Catholic tradition holds that in the early days of Christianity, the apostles of Jesus spread the gospel throughout the known world with James the Greater evangelizing in Roman Hispania, modern day Spain. He confronted great difficulties in his missionary efforts and faced severe discouragement in AD 40 while he was praying by the banks of the Ebro at, and I, I cannot say that, so I'm just going to say Zaragoza, Mary bilocated from Jerusalem where she was living at the time and appeared to James accompanied by thousands of angels to console and encourage him. And of course, this is according to tradition. We do not have any factual evidence of this. A lot of the early church uh, stories are based on uh, accounts from people, firsthand accounts or traditional accounts. We just don't have evidence for them. So they're not, if it's not in the Bible, it's not in, in it 
it, there aren't really good historical accounts of it. It's not necessary for belief. It's not necessary to get into heaven, but it's good to know. And if it helps you to become holier, then why not, you know, um, why not look into it further and find out if it's worthy for belief to help you become holier? So we're going to move on. Some of the earliest archaeological evidence of Marian devotion in Zaragoza is found in Christian tombs dating from Roman days, which appear to bear images representing the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin. In the 4th century, the presence of votive images placed on columns or pillars is attested. So we do, in fact, have evidence that um, Christians were um, venerating. And, and the word venerating might sound strange to some Protestant ears. Venerating is like, oh, only God gets the veneration. No. Well, it's worship specifically that God gets. We only worship God, but we can venerate somebody, for example, who is a movie star. We can venerate somebody who is an athlete. And guess what? People do it all the time. The word venerate mostly means to just give praise to someone and to raise them up on a pedestal, basically to say that hey, they are worthy of, you know, look, being looked up to. Worship, on the other hand, is something only God deserves. That is worship is only for the creator, only for our savior. We don't worship uh, as Catholics. We don't worship Mary. We but we do venerate her just like we would venerate somebody else important. But she's one of the most important because she's the mother of God. So moving on, um, we do have evidence. Um, some people might say, well, this Marian uh, devotion, these this veneration just popped up out of nowhere. No, there is very good archaeological evidence of um, Marian devotion in Zaragoza, in Rome, in the fourth century and even earlier. And this is from Nuguez y Sacal, a book from 1862, which you can go on this Wikipedia page of Our Lady of the Pillar. Please check out these references because they are very good references to books. They tell you the page number and everything if you want to know more. Okay, the oldest written testimony of devotion to the Blessed Virgin in Zaragoza is usually identified as that of Pedro Lebrana in 1155. And we have another book here, Nuestra Senora del Pilar, Our Lady of the Pillar, uh, which is a book from the Catholic, uh, a article from the Catholic Encyclopedia. So there is evidence that the site attracted pilgrims from across the Iberian Peninsula during the 13th century, and it reflected in the work of Milagros de Nuestra Senora, by Gonzala de Berceo, dated to the 1520s, or I'm sorry, the 1250s or early 1260s. The appellation Santa Maria del Pilar is attested for 1299. So basically, um, you know, a lot of we have a lot of evidence from different centuries that people are saying that this happened. The claim that the first church had been the oldest in Hispania, built in AD 40 by James the Greater, is first recorded in 1318. So we don't actually have evidence that James that somebody wrote down that James was there until about 1318. So it could have or could have not happened. Otherwise, it's an interesting tradition. So uh, the tradition of the Marian apparition can be traced to the 15th century. In either 1434 or 1435, a fire destroyed the alabaster altarpiece. The replacement altarpiece features bas relief representations of the Marian apparition. The image of Virgen del Pilar, venerated today, also dates this period. It executed in the late Gothic style of Juan de la Huerta. Pope Callistus III, in a bull issued on the 23rd of September 1456, 
declares a seven-year indulgence for those who visit Our Lady of Saragossa. You're going to hear about indulgences a lot. If you want to know more about it, go to the Wikipedia page on indulgences. Look, Wikipedia is great. I'm a teacher. A lot of teachers hate Wikipedia. They'll t they tell their kids, don't go to Wikipedia. Wikipedia has a ton of great information. You just have to back it up by looking at these little numbers here. And these numbers tell you the resources where they got the information. If you see a Wikipedia paragraph, each paragraph should have a resource. If you see a paragraph without a resource, that means they just pulled that information mostly out of thin air. You can ignore that. But most of the information they have are going to have plenty of resources. As you he see here, we have number resource A and resource nine in just one paragraph. So Wikipedia is great. Don't discount Wikipedia. Moving on, um, the text of the bull specifically mentions a pillar for the first time suggesting the existence of an image known as Our Lady of the Pillar. So that was around 1456. The feast day of 12 October was officially introduced by the Council of Zaragoza in 1640. So whether Our Lady of the Pillar happened in the 4th century or in the 13th century or the 14th century, 15th, we don't really know. But there's more and more evidence the further down we go closer to the 12th and 13th century. And in the 15th century, we have a ton of evidence for uh, for people talking about it whether it happened way back then in the fourth century or uh, later on and was attributed for, you know, we, we really don't know. So um, according to the account of Maria de Agreda, and she died in 1665 in her mystical city of God, which is a great book. You should check it out. And there's a Wikipedia page if you want to look at it. Mary, mother of Jesus, was transported from Jerusalem to Hispania during the night on a cloud carried by angels. During the journey, the angels also built a pillar of marble and a miniature image of Mary with the child Jesus. So that's kind of um, another account from the 17th century of exactly what happened. So like I said, it's tradition. We don't know exactly what happened, but it is interesting to kind of talk about and to kind of see that around the year 40, this could have been a thing that happened to James that he was, you know, kind of feeling like he, he couldn't he finish his job. He was very discouraged because there was uh, severe difficulties going on and God sent encouragement to him in a spiritual or physical way through the mother of Jesus. And at that time, she would have been venerated by the apostles as well, because it's like you are a direct connection to Jesus that we still have on this earth. All of us, we met Jesus when we we're older. You knew Jesus your whole life. So it's kind of like in, you know, uh, a very good encouragement for him to keep going and to stay strong and to keep on uh, presenting to faith the faith to others. So let's go back. Next thing we're going to talk about is Paul's journey. I don't want to get too much into this because this is in the Bible. So uh, we will just do a quick introduction on this Wikipedia page. Mm, yeah. Okay. So no, this is about Barnabas. That's not specifically what I wanted to talk about. So basically, uh, we know all know the story of Paul. Around this time in the year 46, he started his journeys with Barnabas. You can read about that in the book of Acts. Uh, we're not going to go into that too much. I'm more interested in the things that uh, you wouldn't know about. That's really what I'm interested in. So next, uh, and this is the last thing we're going to talk about today, uh, is the Council of Jerusalem. And that determines that Gentile converts to Christianity do not have to abide by Mosaic laws. This will gradually lead to the separation of Christianity 
from Judaism. Some people will say for good. Some people will say for bad. Um, hey, it's what happened. It's in the Bible. Can't really argue with that. Uh, so the Council of Jerusalem or Apostolic Council was held in Jerusalem around AD 50. It is unique among the ancient pre-ecumenical councils in that it is considered by Catholics and Orthodox to be a prototype and forerunner of the later ecumenical councils and a key part of Christian ethics. And what is an ecumenical council? We need to talk about this a little bit because for most Christians, it's going to be a confusing topic. Don't exactly know what a council is. A lot of Christians just don't know. So an ecumenical council is a conference or ecclesiastical, um, sorry, of ecclesiastical dignitaries and theological experts convened to discuss and settle matters of church doctrine and practice in which those entitled to vote are convoked from the whole world. That's what means ecumenical. So in normal language, that basically means that all the bishops come together from all over the world because the Catholic Church is a universal church. It is a universal religion. And there have always been uh, people all over the world, bishops all over the world. An ecumenical council is when they all come together and vote on certain issues with the guidance of the Holy Spirit to decide certain things. And we have in the Bible an example of a council, the Council of Jerusalem. So there were many more ecumenical councils in history. Most of them, uh, most Christians agree on. If you look into the history of it, it's only after a certain point when the Catholics and Orthodox split that people kind of get fuzzy about, well, is it really ecumenical because all the Christians aren't included anymore? And we'll talk about that more when we get to that subject. So the council decided that Gentile converts to Christianity were not obligated to keep uh, most of the laws of Moses, including the rules concerning circumcision of males. And that was a big deal because Romans um, and Greeks were not interested in getting circumcised as adults. Neither would I be. If it's as a baby, not really a big deal. You don't even know what's going on. But you got some guy coming at you with a knife. And uh, if you're a male, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, it's not not such a fun idea. So people were concerned. They were like, I can't really follow this Jesus guy if I need to be under the knife um, in a part that's pretty gentle. So, yeah, not going to go into details, but you know what I'm getting at. So they they nixed the circumcision in um, lieu of, well, baptism was going to be the new way to come into the church versus where circumcision was the way to come into Judaism. So the council did retain the prohibitions on eating blood, meat containing blood, and meat of animals that were strangled, and on fornication and idolatry. Those things are always going to be bad forever and ever. So sometimes these um, this council is referred to as the Apostolic Decree or the Jerusalem Quadrilateral. Accounts of the council are found in Acts of the Apostles chapter 15 in two different forms, the Alexandrian and Western versions, and also possibly in Paul's letter to the Galatians chapter 2. Some scholars dispute that Galatians 2 is about the Council of Jerusalem, notably because Galatians 2 describes a private meeting, while other scholars dispute the historical reliability of the Acts of the Apostles. I don't dispute it at all because, you know, it's really so right here. You don't really have a source. So 
some scholars dispute like you know see see this is where you need to be careful about wikipedia if there is a source boom go to the source and you can read more about what they're trying to say this right here some scholars dispute uh whether like the historical reliability of acts uh, acts is extremely reliable because it was written by a first-hand source did you know that most of the sources we have for Alexander the Great, for example, or Julius Caesar were not written until 500 or more years after these guys had died. Seriously, we might have texts here or there of just, you know, military nature or writing a letter to someone or something. We don't have real biographies of these people until hundreds of years later. We have biographies of Jesus written uh, dozens, dozens of years later, not hundreds, dozens. We have firsthand biographical accounts so they're very reliable and the book of the acts is extremely reliable as history because luke um who was writing it was there he was there the whole time so look out when you're on wikipedia for these paragraphs without sources because they can say pretty much whatever they want to say on here um but but I look at the good of wikipedia because it is really good because um, when they do have sources, the information is going to be spot on. It's going to be legit. I'm not going to go into the Council of Jerusalem more. That's pretty good for episode two. We talked about St. Stephen. He was the first martyr. They stoned him to death because he was debating with Jews trying to help to convert them. Um, and he was helping the people who needed help, the widows specifically, who were Greek. And they did not like the fact that he was helping the Greek widows and they didn't like the fact that he believed Jesus is God. And um, they stoned him and they killed him for that. And what can we learn from that? Because, you know, history is all about learning uh, to avoid the bad things that people did and to do more of the good things that people did so that we can become holier. So first of all, we need to avoid passing judgment on people, specifically judgment that is going to harm someone mentally or physically so uh, first of all in our own mind we should not even try to pass judgment we should say that you know vengeance is the lord's not ours so we need to remember that vengeance is the lord's and it is not up to us to decide whether someone is absolutely right or wrong in a specific instance now we can say that thing they did was wrong and i'm not going to do something like that i'm not going to follow them into doing that but we don't know their heart. We don't know why. And we can't judge them in that instance. We can't judge why they did it. Of course, we can say if we see somebody stealing something, we can say, look, that's wrong. Don't steal. But we can't say he stole because he's a thief and he's always going to be a thief. You know, that that's the kind of judgment we can't pass on others. We don't know why he stole. We don't know if he or she will ever steal again. What we can learn that's good is that Stephen looked up to our blessed lord jesus christ of course he was given a vision we're not all given visions if you do get one it would be great and it is specifically to help in your conversion to keep you strong in the faith he was given a vision um, to keep him strong to be ready to be stoned and killed uh, because he was really the first one after jesus to be killed for the faith um so what can we learn good is that we can we need to remember that God will be there for us in our toughest times, whether we see a physical vision, uh, a spiritual vision of Jesus Christ himself 
or something else, or we just remember a certain Bible verse, or we hear somebody praying for us, we that it will be there. Jesus is there for us, whether we can see him or not in our toughest times. So that's one of the things that we can learn uh, from this. In, around the year 40, we have uh, Our Lady of the Pillar showing up to James the Great. This is a similar thing. Um, when we are in our toughest times, God will give us what we need, whether it is a vision of our of the Virgin Mary or of Jesus Christ himself, the child Jesus. Uh, maybe it's Joseph. You know, we don't know. Uh, maybe it's no vision at all. And some people, uh, some pastors really kind of advise against trying to look for visions and things like that because you could be introducing yourself to uh, um, natural hallucinations or natural dreams and you kind of interpreting them as something else so i'm not saying to look for that but i'm saying what i'm saying is that god is already there jesus christ the holy spirit the trinity is already there for us we don't need to physically see with our eyes or have a vision or a dream or something he's there whether you are seeing it or not they uh the um angels the saints uh jesus the holy spirit god the father they're all there for us at all times and all we have to do is remember it and pray 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 without ceasing so during your toughest times god will be there for you and even in the easy times god is there so this is something we can remember from Our Lady of the Pillar, that God goes to extreme lengths to make sure that we can be with him in heaven. We just have to have our mind open and ready to accept that. In 46, Paul began his missionary journey with Barnabas. What can we learn from that? I really didn't go into this too much, but Paul was a huge sinner and then he converted. Didn't want to go into that story. It's a very popular story. Almost everyone knows about it. But what can we learn from that is that, you know, we need to avoid uh, kind of becoming like the Pharisees. We need to avoid saying that we're holier than thou. And we just need to, in ourselves, in our own mind, become holy. We don't need to compare our holiness to someone else's holiness. We don't need to say, well, I'm holier than that person or I'm not as holy as that person. All we need to say is, am I perfect like my heavenly father is perfect? The answer is no. So you have to keep trying and keep going and going and never think that you're at the height of holiness and you're stuck. That's how Paul felt. Uh, that's how Saul felt before he really became into Paul and started his journey as a Christian. And so we need to remember not to kind of become like Pharisees. Remember to try to become holier every day. Next, we in the year 50, we have the Council of Jerusalem, which determines that Gentile converts don't have to be circumcised specifically and don't have to follow a number of the Mosaic laws. What can we learn from this? That it is important to have other Christians all, all over the whole world discuss important issues. And we really shouldn't think of Christianity as, well, I'm this kind of Christian right here in this little part of the world. It's a worldwide thing. And you need to get in touch with Christians, specifically from other denominations, I um, and, and talk to them about their beliefs, why they believe it, what they know about it, the history of it. And um, talk to, uh, for example, talk to a Coptic Christian, talk to a Greek Orthodox, talk to somebody from the Byzantine a tradition, talk to a Catholic like myself, for example, and, and talk to some people from some, especially from some of the very ancient older traditions 
and get and talk to people from other countries and get an idea of what Christianity is like around the world. It never hurts. It never hurts to get in contact with our brothers and sisters in the faith, especially from other parts of the world that we are unfamiliar with. So a council is a meeting of all the bishops from all over the world. And it kind of gives you this idea that, you know, the church is universal and Catholics um, are all over. We have over a billion Catholics all over the world, all different kinds of traditions, colors and um, people in cold places, warm places. And it's awesome. It's, it's really great to know that we all believe the same thing. We all have the same creed in this fracturing of Christianity. It's very sad that it happened. Um, it was God's, it was God's permissive will. Of course, God permitted it to happen and he's going to make a greater good out of it. It makes me sad specifically, but, um, if you are of other traditions and you don't get in touch with Christians from different traditions as much as a Catholic, I'm in touch with lots of different traditions because in the Catholic church, there are, I believe over 22 or something like 26 different types of christianity within the catholic church so if you think the catholic church is rigid they don't they make everybody do their things the same way and they gotta do all the masses in latin and blah and this no it's not true there's actually uh greek traditions there's aramaic uh, churches that still speak aramaic in their liturgy there uh of course are traditions such as uh polish Orthodox, there's Greek Orthodox, Byzantine Orthodox, and I'm sorry, not Orthodox, um, Byzantine Catholics, because uh, Orthodox is actually a different form of Christianity, it's similar but different. We'll get into that when we get into that. The point I'm getting at is I'm in touch with lots of traditions, lots of Catholics from all over the world, and it's excellent seeing how God works in all these different places and all these different ways. It's beautiful. But I know that a lot of other Christians, especially Protestants, uh, don't really get that experience. So go out of your comfort shell and kind of uh, try to make a little, I don't want to say make a council, but try to try to uh, get counsel. That's a better way to say it from other Christians from around the world, not just other Christians in the U.S. I'm talking about Africa, China, um, India, uh, and, and, and see what their experience with Christ is. Maybe it'll help you become a little bit holier. Who knows? So that's it for today's timeline of church history. Next time, we're going to be going from the year 50. Ends. Here we go. Okay, there we go. So we're going to go from about the year 50 to probably about the year 70 from the year 50 to the year 70 in the next episode of timeline of church history. I hope you enjoyed. This was a longer than usual episode. And I don't know, I don't really have a time limit for these. I'm just going to start talking and do it. So I hope you enjoyed episode two and stay tuned for more episodes. We're going to do a quick prayer and then we're going to close it out in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit 
as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And Lord, thank you so much for giving us history and written history to go back and look at and to see your glory and to see how you have worked in the lives of men and women of your faith and to see how you have converted many to believe in you and and are leading us all to be happier with you in heaven and please lead us to read more and more history and to understand that it is your guide to heaven and that is it uh, amen thanks everybody for checking out the second episode